the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast and a happy new year to all of you on behalf of the OnScript team. This is Matt Lynch. I'm coming to you from Cheltenham in the UK and where I teach at Westminster Theological Center. And on behalf of the whole team at OnScript, we hope that you have a wonderful new year. Uh, the OnScript team has expanded now. If you didn't get the news last year, Erin Heim has joined us. Uh, so that's been really fantastic. And she will be having some episodes coming out in the not-too-distant future. And, of course, Matt Bates and Drew Johnson are still with us, and we'll have some other news as well coming up this year. Uh, In this episode, Drew Johnson and I interview Ian Proven on his book, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. And given that it's the 501st anniversary of the Reformation, we thought it was appropriate that we celebrate in some way, and so we're kicking off the year with this book. We find that... Too often, people are willing to celebrate that 500-year anniversary, and the 501st year gets totally neglected. And and that's like that's like forgetting your kid at at school and and just leaving him there. Uh, or it's like forgetting your spouse's birthday. You know, neither of those things are acceptable or things that we would want, but yet we're willing to forget that 501st anniversary. And that's not how we roll it on script. So we're going we're gonna to pay tribute um, through the whole year, maybe, or maybe not. And uh, so we're going to lead off this book. But in all seriousness, this, this is one of the most provocative books I've read in the, in the last few years in the realm of biblical studies. And I think if you're interested in Protestant hermeneutics, it would be a, a fascinating book for you to get hold of. And it would, the best way to get hold of it, of course, is to click on the link uh, through the OnScript page that gives us a small kickback at no extra cost to you. And uh, that would be really helpful to us. Uh, I want to also say um, how grateful I am to those who are helping behind the scenes. A lot of you aren't aren't aware of this, but we have uh, a whole team that's that's part of producing the show now. Uh, so you, in addition to Aaron Heim, uh, Drew Johnson, Matt Bates, myself, uh, we also have Ed Hackey, who is uh, producing each episode. So thank you so much to Ed. Uh, Tommy Molman has uh, been helping us tremendously with our social media, which prior to him coming was fairly abysmal. Uh, and uh, so he's been helping us out. Paul Young is another um, uh, person who's been really helpful with on the social media front. So and, and there are other people uh, contributing in other ways as well uh, uh, throughout the year. So, so there are there are people behind the scenes that are making this possible, and of course, a lot of you who are supporting that's make, that are making this possible. So, thank you so much. If you are able to donate just five dollars a month this coming year, that would be tremendously helpful to us in keeping the podcast going, fixing some maintenance things behind the scenes that need fixing, and and just generally supporting the. Um, the upkeep of the site we uh the money goes back into the the podcast you know we're not making like a, a living wage off this so that would be that'd be uh really appreciated so you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate for that so we uh hope you enjoy this episode with ian proven and drew johnson and i are interviewing him for this one so enjoy
Hi there, OnScript superfans. Uh, this is Drew Johnson coming to you from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And uh, Matt Lynch, who is at Westminster Theological Cent- Center, not seminary, somewhere down there in the England land. And today we are talking to Dr. Ian Proven. Ian Proven is the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver. He is the author of many books, uh, some of which you will certainly know, uh, including Seriously Dangerous Religion, which we've already interviewed him about that book uh, on OnScript. You can look that up in the archive. Uh, Also, A Biblical History of Israel, which he co-wrote with Phil Long and Tremper Longman. And today we're going to be talking to him about his new book, The Reformation and Right Reading of Scripture, which is by Baylor University Press. So, first of all, Ian, uh, welcome to OnScript. Uh, thanks, Matt. Nice to be back. So, Ian, this is uh, a very ambitious book, uh, to say the least, and one that's obviously been stewing for quite a while with uh, in your mind. And so I'm wondering if you could help set the context for the book, maybe tell its story uh, of origin and development, and, and then maybe also talk about the four positions against which uh, you're setting your approach, which you've called your fifth approach uh, to reading the Bible. Uh, Sure. Um, Of course, one answer to this question would be very long because I've been wrestling with questions of how best to read the Bible for my entire adult life. Um, And a lot of my work and writing has been related to bits of that question. And I've taught courses and so on. So the bigger context is that lifelong journey. The narrower context is the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. Um, And that just seemed like a good moment to try to put a lot of these things down in one argument. So um, that's the kind of larger setting of the thing. And then the the close context, the one you just asked me about, is that I think that the Protestant Church is in some disarray at the present time on the question of how best to read Scripture. And there are various ideas Uh, They're not particularly compatible with each other, but very few people appear to be trying to negotiate their way through that to to try and argue what might be good or bad or right or wrong-headed about about all of that. So the four positions I lay out in the book as a kind of family tree, I guess, of of where we're at would be the historical critical um, modernist reading that uh, derives really from just about in the time of the Enlightenment, but really takes off the 19th century and has dominated university life for much of the 20th century. The postmodern posture that is also a very a prominent feature now of university education and has touched, well, both of these have touched the church in various ways uh, as well. And then thirdly, uh, the kind of view represented by the folks who signed off on or have adopted the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics, which is a, a kind of um, backward-looking, let's try to reclaim aspects of the past and, and take our stand there. Um, and that this one would, would view modernity and postmodernity as fundamentally problematic and to be resisted, I think, more than anything else. And the same would be true of the fourth position, which is really looking to go further back, uh, though, and to reunite our contemporary context with the history of the church prior to the Reformation, and particularly the patristic period 
I guess, would be very important. But also aspects of high, the high Middle Ages and, and that kind of thing. Uh, I think all of these positions are wrestling with real issues. I think they all have, <clears throat> excuse me, they all have something to say. But I don't think any one of them is adequate by itself. And I try and plot a, a different way that makes use of the best insights of these various positions, but is, is its own uh, argument, really. Uh, well, thank you for laying that out. Uh, this is Drew speaking. I, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Eastern European thinker um, Al Yankovic. He goes by Weird Al Yankovic here. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Uh, but he uh, no, also I don't think so. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, allow me to introduce you to him. Well, this is exciting. Yes. I get to introduce you, of all people, to a thinker you've never heard of. Um, he recently wrestled with this exact same problem, what's um, the literal versus the figurative use of the word, uh, and he put it into a song. It's actually a parody song, um, but I'll play a little bit for you here now, and I'll recite the lyrics. Were you able to hear that? Uh, not really, no. Oh, let me I, read for I'm you the in, lyrics. Not right? in detail, yeah. Please, okay. please, please enlighten me on that. Yeah, well, he's Eastern European, but he speaks in an American dialect. Uh, and I thought that you'd gotten it through your skull, what's figurative and what's literal. Oh, but now, just now you said you literally couldn't get out of bed. That really makes me want to literally smack a crowbar upside your stupid head. I think you used a glued-to-my-chair example uh, similar to this. Um, I guess uh, you, you made this very nice distinction, I think, uh, that will be very useful for a lot of readers, the difference between uh, literal and literalism. Maybe you could talk about the importance of that distinction uh, for modern uh, evangelical readers. Yes. One of my convictions is that we talk past each other very often in this discussion about Bible reading for want of good definitions that we have agreed on. And one of the most uh, tricky words in that context is this word literal. Lots of people claim to be reading literally, but they mean rather different things by that. And so in one of my chapters, I simply set out to try and make an argument as to how we should use words in order to gain, gain clarity about what the real issues are. Uh, I think literal reading, and certainly the reformers, when they talk about literal reading, they're talking about paying serious attention to the biblical literature, uh, looking for the communicative intent of the authors who produce this. And that takes into account things like metaphor and a whole bunch of other figures of speech. Uh, and so that's really, I think, what the word literal should mean. But of course, in our culture, as your rapping friend just uh, reminded us, the word literal is used in all sorts of other ways, including emphatically. Um, and quite often in church use, it's used in a very wooden way over against things like metaphor. You know, you're reading it metaphorically, but you ought to be reading it literally. And I think that kind of thing is just really unhelpful to, to, in terms of a productive conversation about uh, hermeneutics. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, Ian, when when re reading your book, that 
it, when people hear that you're advocating a literal approach to the Bible, their mind might go to something like a literal reading of Genesis 1, which for a lot of people means reading it scientifically or as a scientific treatise or something like that. Um, so is it is it basically that to read the Bible literally as you're talking about, it means to read it literarily? Yes, that that's part of it. But I think the, the analogy that I prefer to go to, because I think it helps people to see this connection, even if they're not great readers, is just normal communication. So in, in listening to the question you've just asked me, I've been paying attention to your communicative intent and I'm framing my response in light of what I believe you meant to say. And this is just normal speech. And you might well have used metaphors uh, in that last sentence. I don't think you did, but you might well have done. And a literal reading of you would have meant recognizing the metaphor and understanding what you meant by that. Um, but you're quite right about expectation levels. And this is one reason why the publisher was not very happy with my first choice of title. My first choice of title for this new book was Seriously Literal Interpretation, which I thought was cute because of the previous book. But their response was, the trouble is people will think they know already what you mean by that and they won't even pick up your book. And I think they were quite right. Um, so I try to introduce this this discussion slowly into the book rather than hitting people with with the word right up front. Yeah, and that, that um, picks up another point that I had questions about when I was reading. I was kind of watching what you were doing in the book with uh, the idea of the communicative intent of the author. And sometimes you said the communicative intent of the text. So, so you're making the claim that to read the Bible literally means to read along the grain of the author's intention. Um, but, but then again, sometimes I think we're aware of texts that seem to go beyond what an author could have known or intended at the time or beyond what, um, you know, and then there are other questions hermeneutically about the degree to which we can recover an author's intent. So I'd be, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on those challenges of interpretation. Yes, the, the variation that you're talking about in my wording, I don't think was conscious on my part. I wasn't making decisions about when I talked about author or text. And the reason is precisely because when I talk about author's intent, I'm not talking about a reconstruction of, of you know, Paul's mind, as it were, on the day when he wrote Galatians. I'm talking about reading the text that he's given us with an eye to what he meant by what he likely meant by, by what he wrote. So the intent is only discerned really through the text and with the text, not separately from the text. You're quite right. Uh, as to the business of whether texts transcend in some way our intentions, I think we've probably all had the, an experience of that at some point where we've gone back to something we've written and we realized that uh, perhaps there was more to that than was consciously in our mind. So I think we have to give some place to that. But on the other hand, I think when we go too far down the road of separating alleged meaning from communicative intent, we get into an uncontrollable, chaotic environment, really. And, and it was largely that environment that the reformers were reacting against, actually, in the high Middle Ages, I think. 
Well, yeah, I, it's funny you were you were talking about the uh, how we talk about this today. I was just reading two different articles today on how people were misunderstanding something somebody said because they didn't think about other texts that would have informed. So I don't know if you know the Louis Farrakhan video where he's preaching about how he's been wrong and Jesus, his savior, that he now recognized that Jesus is savior. And so Christians are circulating this as evidence that Louis Farrakhan, uh, the black Muslim, has now become a Christian. Uh, but he means something very different by each one of those words, including Jesus is actually a prophet in the black Muslim uh, movement who he believes did not actually die, who is alive, who is going to save him. Um, and so there's this kind of natural way uh, of reading that... Uh, the, the chastisement in this article was, you know, come on, Christians, just just use simple hermeneutics here. Uh, look at look at all the text in context, and I think that's what you mean by seriously literal. I was going to work the phrase seriously literal interpretation in there some way if if you weren't. Um, and I think it's also important to point out that part of a publisher's job is to kill all of our best ideas for book titles. Uh, that's been my experience, at least. So, so this is something well, we struggle I, with I today. Must say, regularly. Though, I, I have to. I have to say that I think uh, the folks at Baylor, though, made a really good call on this. So I want to be very nice because they're a wonderful publishing house and they, they treat their authors astonishingly well. Uh, so I'm not too unhappy about losing that title. But you'll notice the phrase still pops up in the book here and there. So I haven't abandoned the, the idea. Your question about communicative intent and context, though, is crucial, isn't it? Because... Words always mean what they mean in context, whether it's historical context or indeed literary context. And so I believe that part of the literal meaning of Scripture is precisely what a text like Amos means in the context of the minor prophets, because I believe we have ample evidence that the biblical authors themselves were writing attentive to the tradition they were writing in. Um, so, yes, to, 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 to make a, a proper job of understanding uh, one text inevitably involves um, the, the contextual question, I believe. And I, th I think this is a good place to, to talk about a, a case where, again, I think it would be easy to misunderstand what you're saying because of our notion of how uh, literal reading might work. Um, uh, you you make a case in the book that the New Testament authors are reading the Old Testament literally, and and I think that that's going to surprise some readers because they look at at some examples where it seems like the New Testament authors are finding Jesus where Jesus doesn't exist in the Old Testament. So I just thought it'd be good maybe to um if you could talk about your example of Psalm two in relation to Acts four, where you know Peter and John have have just been have escaped a brush with the law and but they've faced some serious opposition from the high priests and the elders and and it says that when they went back to the um other uh believers uh they raised their voices to God with one mind and said master of all you who made the heaven the earth the sea and everything in in them who said by the Holy Spirit through your prophet through your servant David our forefather why do the nations rage and the people plot foolish things the kings of the earth stood together and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against His Christ 
For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together in this city and against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So so for a lot of people, they're going to look at that and say, hey, he's taken that out of context. Psalm 2 has nothing to do with Jesus and certainly not Herod and Pontius Pilate. So how is that reading Psalm 2 literally? Well, it's a great question because I think this is a good example that gets to the heart of the matter. I think one of the things that certain views of reading literally have led to is an atomistic, isolated kind of pattern of reading. I think modern historical criticism is particularly guilty of this. The folks in that tradition tend to want to say that the real meaning of a text is what it means in a kind of one-by-one way, you know, text-by-text, in differing historical contexts, and there may be thousands of these, in fact, in any you know, given part of, of Scripture. Uh, whereas I, I think that that is a, a bizarrely unhistorical idea because the texts themselves have come to us as part of a tradition. They've been reshaped for community use, um, I think, all the way through. That's why we have them. We don't you know, have similar literary traditions from other parts of the ancient world. Um, And Psalm 2 is already playing a very interesting role within the book of Psalms. Um, It's a royal psalm in a period when Israel has no kings. You have to ask what it's doing there at all. It seems to me that a very strong argument can be made for, for the idea that it's already anticipating a king who is yet to come and is functioning, therefore, as a kind of... um, there's a typological element to, to this where what the apostles are doing is simply saying the kind of scenario that Psalm 2 is envisaging here is precisely the scenario that's playing out in front of you. Uh, I think that counts as literal reading, but of course, people have to understand that what I mean by that has to be read in context of chapter 4, right? So mm-hmm. what is going to be surprising I think to people is that they already think they know what literal means. Therefore, my proposition here seems bizarre. But I actually think that people have a bizarre idea of what literal means. So we have to sort that out before we can make progress here, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, you, you suggest early on in the book, I'm not sure exactly where, um, but it was early on that literal will include metaphorical, typological, uh, figural readings. And, and maybe you could explain... How is metaphorical reading literal reading, uh, just to cut to the chase? Well, I mean, let's take an example. Uh, if, if one of the Psalms tells us that the, the mountains clap their hands for joy, for example, the author intends to say something by that, uh, but he's not using the language in a kind of normal way, if you like, if, if that's even the correct way of putting it, because metaphor is perfectly normal. So... Even there, we we can find ourselves with our own language sometimes. Um, But what he doesn't mean is you should go and try and recruit the mountains for your praise band on Sunday. You know, that's not the level of discourse. So to read that psalm literally is to try to get at what the person means by using the metaphor. Another example I mentioned in the book, which Kevin Van Hooser has written very nicely about, is Jesus saying, I am the door. Now, you need to know what a door is in a normal sense to know what that means, but that by itself will not get you to what Jesus means by it, right? Because so 
literal truth about Jesus is being asserted there, but it's being asserted through a metaphor, yes? Um, so we're very bad at this at this kind of conversation, I think, in many of our churches. We're just, we, we, we spend a lot of time defending literal interpretations without really discussing what we mean by, by that terminology. The, the common problem, I just, this is kind of an aside, I'm, I'm wondering, um, I always have this question of when the, when the language is so dogged by its baggage, at what point do you just switch the language? Um, if you were to switch the language from literal and literalistic, uh, is there another set of terms you would prefer? Well, not really, and I've thought about this, but I, I'm not inclined to give up perfectly good words just because other people are misusing them. And, and one of the problems with changing the language is you also cut yourself off from the tradition behind you. And that's not helpful because we have to understand who we are in terms of the whole story that's unfolded behind us. So I actually want to retrieve words like literal. Um, now, there are other words currently in use that are not particularly biblical words, like the word evangelical as a noun, for example. And arguably, given what's happening in politics worldwide, that's a word that perhaps we should take a sabbatical from for a little while. Not because I don't myself hold to evangelical tenets of faith, but just because the word itself now, people know immediately what that means. And of course, they're wrong <laughs> very often, or at least they're only partially right. Uh, so there are words there that I don't feel so strongly about, but actually literal is a word that I want mm -hmm. to claim back and uh, put back in a, in a constructive context. Well, maybe it'd be helpful then to talk about the history of that as a concept. So the census literalis, um, it, it, this is something the church has explicitly wrestled with. So could you talk about a bit of that history and then, you know, to say why you don't want to cut yourself off from it? Well, because one of the questions, well, perhaps even the main question that I'm asking in the book is what how are we justified in reading in any way at all? What's the warrant that we claim for our Bible reading? Yes. Uh, what's the authority we claim for it? That's a really important question. Is there a right way of reading? Who says so? Yes. Uh, so as I go back to Scripture itself and then follow that through into the post-apostolic church, the question of what our Lord himself and the apostles and then the church fathers believed to be the right ways of reading is, is a very important question, which is why I spend so much time on the New Testament appropriation of the, of the old. Um, you get to somebody like Augustine, who at least in his theorizing about this, is very strong on the importance of the literal sense and is already pointing out the dangers of departing from it, which is kind of ironic if you know his sermons, because he frequently does depart from it, but in his theory, at least, uh, I think he's very good. And that whole tradition is fundamental, really, even where people were fairly relaxed about allegorical reading in some contexts, when it came to doctrine and, and matters of faith and practice, the church largely agreed that it was the literal sense that you were after and that your allegorical readings only had as much weight to them as, as the foundation that lay, lay beneath. So that, that's why the tradition is important. It's a question of which story we're in and whether we are writing the latest act of a continuous drama or just doing our own thing. And there's already too much doing our own thing in our Protestant churches. So I prefer not to mm -hmm. add to that. Yeah, and, and I thought that was one of the more um, significant contrib contributions of your book was 
showing the long tradition of wrestling with and fighting for the literal sense of scripture, because I think it's easy um, to have this sort of narrative in our mind that the church fathers and the medievalists were generally kind of allegorical, spiritual in their approach to reading scripture. And then the reformers pivoted significantly and said, hey, we have to go back to the literal sense of scripture in a way that was in complete disjunction with the rest of church history. So that, I thought that was a really helpful uh, contribution in the book. Yeah, I, I think perhaps um, in our own Protestant tradition, we don't have a very clear memory even of the Reformers at the present time. And one of the things I don't think many of us realize is that the Reformers themselves claimed that they were the ones standing in the great tradition behind them, and it was their opponents who had departed from it. And we have to take that very seriously because if it's false, it's a massive falsehood. And if it's true, which I believe it is, then it's really important for us to understand it. Yeah, it would, you, you didn't address it too much in the book, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether, you know, pre, pre-Reformation you have humanism come into play. And it, did people generally view humanism as kind of like the refreshing wind of the Spirit bringing us back uh, to what the New Testament was all, always doing? No, on the contrary, the, the, the whole humanist scholastic thing was a massive conflict in the in the pre-Reformation period. And the fault lines of the Reformation, as they turned out, were very largely the fault lines also between humanists and scholastics. Not that all humanists became Protestant, but certainly many Protestants had serious humanist input. So the idea of going back to the sources, for example, which was a general humanist idea, the idea of learning original languages is already a humanist idea. Um, so although people like Luther were not in, in Erfurt, not terribly directly touched by humanism, many others were, John Calvin, for example. And Luther himself increasingly came into circles where these, these uh, ideas, at least, were, were, were normal, if you like. So the Renaissance certainly prepared the way for the Reformation, although it's not the only thing that prepared the way for the Reformation, but it's certainly one of the straws in the wind. Uh, and you're, you're already getting proto-Protestant kind of discussions going on in the preceding period before you get to Martin Luther's personal crisis and all of that. Ian, you were you were quite open in the book that uh, your approach to reading the Bible is in pretty significant methodological and theological uh, uh, disagreement with your colleague uh, Hans Borsma and his approach to uh, reading Scripture, or at least his hermeneutical method for how how Christians sh- should read Scripture. And he he just published his book Scripture as Real Presence: Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church. Uh, because you mentioned that, I wonder if you could just set the context for uh, Hans's approach to Scripture, and and maybe some of the points of disagreement, and and also if you could, you know, when you two sit down for coffee together, what kinds of conversations uh, do you have about these topics? That's a great question. I'm very happy you asked it because because of our tribalism and our battles and stuff, it's typically assumed that when we disagree with each other, we probably hate each other. So I, I'm very happy to enter into that conversation. So um, Hans is coming at this whole question of reading scripture from a much wider set of commitments. Uh, he really wants to reconnect our contemporary Protestant situation with 
not just a pre-Reformation tradition generally, but with a very specific kind of Platonist Christian prior, you know, uh, sort of reality. Um, he feels that modernity has really cut all of our threads connecting us to transcendence, and, and he thinks modernity and postmodernity are thoroughly problematic. Um, but he wants to go back even further and say the Reformation itself, although in many ways necessary, was a tragedy because it simply confirmed many of the things already going wrong with regard to you know what where the church was being influenced by culture. So as part of that uh, recovery of what he calls sacramental ontology, this idea that the very nature of being is better described by some of the high medieval and patristic people than by people who came afterwards. He's also interested in retrieving sacramental exegesis, really. Um, and this is where this book comes from. Uh, and one of the things about sacramental exegesis, again, is that it's, it's, it's directly related at every point to transcendence through Christ. So it's heavily Christological in focus. And notions of time, for example, the passing of time, historical context for, re as for reading text, these become much less important, as I think, in his way of thinking. Uh, so that's, that's a very significant position, and it's one of the ones that I cite in the book as significant that I want to affirm in. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very persuaded by much of his critique of modernity and postmodernity. I just don't really think the solution is terribly convincing. So I, I don't agree with them in, in, in various ways, and I, I certainly don't agree with them in, in the way that uh, he's wanting us to, to read scripture. I think this is not a, a helpful step. And I don't think we can just dismiss modernity and postmodernity. I think we have to go through it and out the other side and deal constructively with it. But as to our personal relationship, we have worked very, very hard on that through time. Uh, we do go out for coffee. We do talk to each other. Um, <laughs> In a friendly way, we we always try to keep that conversation respectful, even where we're we're disagreeing, and to model that for for our students as well, who are not accustomed to good disagreement in church. And so this comes as quite a shock, I, I think, a positive, constructive uh, shock um, to to some of our students early in their studies that, that two professors can significantly disagree, actually, but do so in a in, in a respectful uh, manner. Um, so, you know, we, we continue to, to work at that. And I admire Hans greatly as a very fine Christian person, very pastoral heart. Um, I'm, you know, he and I are united completely by the Nicene Creed and all sorts of important Orthodox standards of faith. So that's the context, the wider context in which we're having this um, important discussion. I don't want to minimize the importance of the conversation though and get all mushy about this i actually think this is really important so well um i think it's time for our first speed round uh so if if you're up for that okay. um yes okay. so we're gonna we're gonna start off with an athletic question i'd like for our listeners to hear um what is your greatest athletic accomplishment uh, winning the bumps in the rowing races at Cambridge, probably. Okay. And what are the bumps? 
Well, uh, the river cam is very narrow, so you can't race side by side. So you race, you begin one and a half lengths apart, and the idea is to catch the boat in front of you and bump into it. And if you do, you go above them the following day, and you row for four days. And if you bump each of a boat on each of those days, you get your oars, as it were, which means you have the right to get your name painted on an oar for all eternity. And uh, it sits in the college somewhere, and you're very famous. So that's probably now, I met you at yeah. SBL uh this the, a couple of weeks ago, and um, my brother is a an accomplished rower. Uh, still, he still coaches rowing to this day. Um, you did not seem like a particularly tall person to me. Maybe average height. Where were you? <laughs> where were you sitting in the boat, and were you skull or sweep? Uh, I uh, in that boat, well, I just begun rowing, so I was right at the back in the number two position. But I did eventually, in the, in the course of time, get up to stroke later on. This was this was college rowing, so there were many many divisions, and you didn't have to be a super duper fitness guy. Um, I did try out for the lightweight Cambridge crew uh, when I was there, and I'm happy to report that I finished eighth in the fitness tests for the entire intake. But my rowing was not. <laughs> I was quite pleased. I was 28. That's actually not too bad. 28. Um, wow. Yeah. I know, competing with all these young guys. So that was really good. I, my, my rowing wasn't technically good enough to actually make the crew, but at least I got through into the rowing bit. So that was good. What's the last book which, when reading it, you threw it across the room? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That, that's a great question, but I don't recall ever throwing a book across the room. Uh, that's no, Ian, that was, that was a dig at me, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Which was the last book you read and you threw it across the room? Let's just say no comment. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. And it's not yours. Yeah, it's not, it was okay, not yours. Good. I could have knocked a shelf out or something with that thing. Yeah. Uh, was, um, is, there, is there a book that you metaphorically threw across the room recently? Uh no, not really. I, I mean, as you know, Matt, because we've we've been together in class. I mean, my uh, my posture towards other people's ideas is really, really try to respect them and understand them, even if you think they're wildly wrongheaded, because there may be something you have to learn. So I'm not really the the book throwing kind of guy at this point in my life. I try to, I assiduously try to find the constructive and the good, even in the most awful book. Yeah, I, I still pass on your advice to my students that um, you ought to be reading things that you seriously disagree with on a regular basis, uh, which I always I will email you a book recommendation, right, uh, Ian. Okay. <laughs> to see whether it provokes <laughs> me? Yeah. <laughs> we want to see your okay. test your limits. Okay, do you yeah. consider it a worthwhile investment for humans to attempt colonizing Mars? No, I do not. I think that's a crazy idea. We'd be a lot better, sir, trying to actually feed the hungry and, 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 and deal with preventable diseases and stuff. I think this is crazy stuff. What's the funniest thing that happened to you recently? Oh, my goodness. This is, this is a difficult one as well because I can't even think. I've gone into brain freeze now. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. No, I can't. I can't even. I can't even unlock that part of my brain. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, I'll try a joke then. All right. Knock knock. Who's there? Two. Two who? 
To whom? <laughs> I like that. Well right. done. Uh, Nicely does, chosen. <laughs> all right, back to outer space. Does extraterrestrial life exist? And if so, does salvation extend to it as well? It may exist. salvation in Christ. Uh, yes, it may well exist. I'm not entirely confident that we will ever discover such. It would seem a bit strange that if it exists, it hasn't manifested itself or got in touch with us yet. Although, if C.S. Lewis is right, it may be looking at saying we're, we're going nowhere near them. They've got the plague. So that could be an explanation. But if it does exist, though, uh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure what I think about, about that because Christ becomes homo sapiens, doesn't he? And saves us. Um, and the question of whether these other beings are fallen or not is interesting. C.S. Lewis is my go-to imaginative guide here in the science fiction trilogy. I think he's very interesting on this point. Yeah, I always I always go back and forth between if Christ is the second Adam, then is he just the redeemer of the human race? Um, but mm. yet he also redeems creation. So does that extend to all things? So it's a bit of a yeah. bit of a conundrum yeah. there. There is a very is interesting. Is it possible, Matt? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, or it's possible that students write MA theses on this topic. Oh, <laughs> Drew, Drew, do you have a? Well, I, I, yeah, there's. I, this is the only time I can talk about this book. Is there? There is a novel about this very premise um, where a guy gets recruited to go to this other planet where their engineers are working and there's an indigenous population and he becomes their pastor. And lo and behold, it turns out there was a pastor there before him who's disappeared. And uh, that pastor there before him turned these aliens into King James only. So... (laughs) (laughs) uh, The the Book of Strange New Things is the name of the novel. It's very good. Now that's a plausible storyline. That's I can believe. (laughs) It's happened. All right, uh, one more. You've answered this question before, um, so see if you, you've shifted. Um, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? I've answered that before. Was it a yeah, good answer? Yeah. Well, um, I, I think so, but you know, see where you're at now. Well, you know, the, the big one for me is still this idea that somehow the Old Testament is really not fully Scripture, uh, and, and we can manage with the New Testament. And this idea that you know, Marcion lost the battle but won the war is one that still really, I, I think there's loads of evidence that's true. And I think it's very damaging to the life of the church to not be dealing with the entirety of the scripture that we have been given by Christ himself for our, for our life's journey. Um, so that's the most fundamental one for me as an Old Testament scholar, because a lot of my teaching and preaching career ha- has really been aimed at, at doing something about that problem. Um, and it, it's a very lonely, it, it can feel as if it's a very lonely uh, furrow to plow, uh, to be honest. Um, so that remains for me the big one, I think. Well, I think um, Drew can agree that we're with you. You're not alone. Uh, although I often refer to myself yeah, as Chicken absolutely. Little when I get on this diatribe in class. Like, I'm not Chicken Little. <laughs> this yeah. is really a problem. Yeah. Um, returning to the... Well, the trouble is I keep saying when people say to me, you know, you're overly pessimistic, you can't behave as if the world's about to end all the time. I say, yeah, but one day it will. So eventually, eventually I'm going to be right if I live long enough. That's well, my you can position. always say it's in your genes as well. <laughs> That's true. That's true. 
But that's only because the Scots are one of the lost tribes of Israel, so we know the truth of the matter. <laughs> I've not heard that one yet. Um, going back to the book, uh, you have a section called How Shall We Then Read, which I assume was a riff on Francis Schaeffer's How Shall We Then Live. Um, um, and the history of the Western Church features very prominently in this book, uh, but I noticed a noticeable absence of the medieval Indian and Chinese and African church. Um, and so it, it made me think of uh, allegorical readings in those traditions, right? So you have the Tang Dynasty, uh, Chinese monastic Christian tradition from the Nestorian Persian monks, um, and they largely translate the Christian Gospels into sutra and allegorical readings, actually very bizarre allegorical readings according to our taste. Um, and I teach uh, occasionally in East Africa, in rural East Africa, and um, it, when I teach biblical hermeneutics there. And one of the first things I uh, have to deal with is that everything is spiritualized and everything is allegorized. And so in, in some sense, you know, there's a, a huge section of the church around the world uh, in history and still today um, that might resist or won't know what to do with this literal reading, that, that their go-to uh, movement in reading the text is allegorical. So I'm wondering, just as a piece of sage advice or wisdom, so when I go back to Kenya and teach again, um, how would you move somebody from just a, a solid allegorical reading into this literal, seriously literal reading that you're advocating? Well, that's a really great question, and it's really the kind of question that requires a long discussion, unfortunately. But I, I think the first thing I would say is, you used uh, that little phrase, not to our taste. And I think the first thing we have to be clear about is that this is not a question of taste. It's not a question of whether something is Western or Eastern or whatever. I mean, I really could care less about all of that, to be honest. I'm not any great kind of advocate of Western culture, for example, just because it's Western. There's good things and there's bad things. Um, the real question is, is the one that I pose in the book. What warrant do we have at all for any kind of reading that we do? Right? What, what are we authorized to do with these scriptures? These scriptures are given to us by Christ. We didn't invent them, right? They're not, they don't have our copyright on them. They're given to us by Christ through the apostles. And they come not just with a, with a kind of strong suggestion we should read Mark and inwardly digest them, but I think with strong advice on how to read. And if that is true, that's true for all Christians. Now, of course, the scriptures need to be translated into other languages. And of course, uh, they, they have to be translated culturally to some extent as well in order that equivalencies of, you know, people can understand and and so on. But I think we have to be very careful with this at the moment because we're going through this whole post-colonial kind of, you know, thing. And, and there's much that's good in that critique. But if it becomes a matter of, well, you guys in the West happen to read it this way, and as people over here, we have a long tradition of reading this other way. Well, descriptively, that's fine to say that, but it still begs the question, yes, but what's the right way? Is there a right way? Um, at what point does your translation actually become a different story? You know, at what point do you lose the plot, quite literally? Um, so much allegorical reading, I think, just, just begins to spin away into something else. And you see that already in the early church, the way in which um, quite baneful effects of Greek philosophy, in my opinion, touch 
early Christian discourse and, and all the way through. And still to this day, I think uh, we, we suffer some of those issues. Um, so to me, this is an issue of how ought Christians everywhere at all times to read? That's the fundamental question. And then the question of how you translate in the indigenizing process and so on, that's a very legitimate secondary set of questions, but they are secondary questions, I think. And I think we have to hold each other to account in the global church for all of our translations, if you like, you know, and say, you know, at this point, your translation really is not orthodox or helpful. So, Ian, you talk about allegorical readings often spinning away from the the plot of Scripture, and and I was, you know, you you had a quote on page two twelve: the entire bundle of ideas that the body is less important than the soul, and marriage less worthy than celibacy, that erotic desire and passion are problematic, are uh, and are to be suppressed, and that the goal of existence is the ascent of the soul to God. And you know, you're talking about how these are all problematic. Um, conclusions of an allegorical approach to the Bible, at least as they took shape in the early church or the uh, medieval church. Um, and the the assumption here seems to be that allegorical readings are especially susceptible to prevailing philosophical ideas. But, you know, I look today at folks who embrace a, what they would consider a more literal approach to Scripture and it still seems very susceptible to, you know, upper middle class suburban ideals or to in individualism. So I'm, I'm just wondering if, is it that the method of reading is more susceptible or um, if the, the fault lies somewhere else? Well, I, mean, I certainly don't want to suggest there are sinless readers anywhere, no matter which kind of method they, they claim to be following. Of course, the question of whether any of us is reading well or badly remains always a question. And we ought to have due humility whenever somebody else points out to us that we're reading badly and at least consider whether they might be right. But the thing about literal reading is that at least if people have that commitment, you're able to go back to the Bible and actually say, yes, but does it actually say that? There's a, there's a kind of implied set of rules there. People may not yet have the greatest definition of literal or whatever, but at least you know what it is you are doing and disagreeing, and you know where to go. There's an agreement. You go back to Scripture, you try and work out what the Apostle Paul really meant, and you, you try to come to agreement about that. trouble with allegorical reading is that it's, it's very hard to even know where to begin because it's like pushing into a, a beanbag or whatever the equivalent is, a pillow, you know, it kind of makes an indentation. You take your finger out and it comes out and it never seems to make a permanent impression because uh, the appeal to communicative intent fails because the answer is just, yeah, I know. I, I know the Apostle Paul likely met that historically, but um, I prefer or we prefer or the church has preferred or whatever to read in this way. And... So the question of, of how you even, how scripture can possibly function as a canon, as a measuring stick for our beliefs and, and, and life, becomes a, a real issue there. So um, the reason I pick on allegorical reading is, is because of its, its, its history, I think, reveals already the very profound extent of, of the problem. And that list that you, you just read, I, I really do believe that None of those ideas are to be found in Scripture, not even remotely. It's not as even as if they're close to the truth, you know. Um, 
and yet lots of people bearing the name of Christ have, have you know, have, have held to those very things, as you well know, and uh, I think it's very troubling. So, yeah, I, I just have one yeah. more question that I want to ask. It's actually two parts, but um, you talked about remedies to the problem that you've outlined, um, and I, I, it was on levity, sloth, and learning, which I, I like the triplicate here. Um, and you say, look, in order for this this fifth way to work, it has to be widely owned by the church. And I take it that you mean there can't be an expert class. There needs to be kind of a general expertise amongst the church. Um, and you talk about what's adequate learning environments. And uh, you seem to say, like, like, look, we need to get on board. People need to have a better education of biblical studies, ancient Near East, the history of, of translation. In general, and as I was reading that, uh, now I became a Christian uh, around 20 years old in a non-denominational charismatic church uh, in the early 1990s, and um, that actually described the church I was in. Uh, there was a lot of people reading Josephus, uh, church history, and generally ancient Near East. Um, they knew scripture extremely well, uh, and these were people who weren't necessarily, you know, a lot of them were blue-collar workers. Uh, these were not, uh, some of them were college-educated, some not. Um, and so it made me wonder if there is, you know, I don't know how to put it politely, if there's a generational issue going on here, uh, which I certainly see every year in the class, uh, less and less fluency and literacy with biblical literature. Um, or maybe there's a denominational. So, for instance, I saw that in the non-denominational charismatic church in the 80s and 90s. I didn't see it as much when I became a Presbyterian minister. So I saw people who knew systematic theology really well, uh, but did not know Scripture very well or the history around it and weren't really interested in the issues of, of Scripture and biblical history. Um, so I'm wondering if, the, you know, this issue of capacity and motivation, you, you suggest, look, the capacity is fully there. We got everything at our fingertips now more than ever. Um, but I'm wondering uh, if the motivation it can also be reduced to something this simple as your theological outlook or the generation you were raised in. Well, I think there are, are probably multiple um, reasons for the situation we're in, and, and you've certainly named a number of them there, I think. Um, so there's more than one thing going on. Uh, um, I, I think that the whole point about the Reformation is but it has to be an ongoing thing because we're always slipping back. It's much easier to have a different kind of religion, which is why people very often go there, right? Um, the kind of Christian faith that I think Scripture envisages and that, that has very often been taught and certainly was picked up in the Reformation is much more robust, challenging, requires more of the individual, for sure. We have to own it. And the reformers were so convinced of the need for people to own it that they devised mass literacy programs and, you know, and, and you know, urged people to learn Hebrew and Greek and all the rest of it. And, you know, our urgings are, are way lower level on the whole. That, that church you, you described sounds wonderful, but I think even... It's hard to know this. I suspect even back in your time there, though, that would be unusual. It, it probably was, it yeah. Yeah, it doesn't conform to my general experience of free church charismatic contacts on the whole. Uh, the Presbyterians, you know, they ought to know better because they come from a tradition where all of this was true. So they've they largely lost their way, and I'm one of those. So I am allowed to say that in a robust manner, I think. We have lost our way. Um so, 
Yeah, Generation, generationally, though, there are some in, interesting issues there because if you go back into the history even of um, socialist movements, so you take the UK and the, the tremendous upsurge in interest in and commitment to education among ordinary working people in the first part of the 20th century, for example. Not religious, but simply the idea that education was a good thing, you had to improve yourself. Tremendous commitment to that generationally back, maybe two generations, three generations ago. We now suffer massive numbers of distractions. We're living in a distracted culture. We're living in a world where people are watching an incredibly large amount of TV. They're on the internet and their phones constantly. And they would probably say they're too busy, you know, to engage in serious Christian education. But I think we have to address those things straight on because a spiritual problem that um, is it's not, it's not our lack of resources. It's not that we really, most of us, lack time to do some, some work. Uh, I think it should be the understood expectation in church that every Christian should be as well educated as a Christian as they are in other areas of their life. That'd be a reasonable starting point. Nobody's expecting a somebody who you know left school at sixteen and entered a trade to you know immediately, as it were, you know rise in their level of Bible understanding to you know enormous heights. But I think it's a spiritual problem when we have professional graduate people whose Bible grasp is still 101. That ought to be regarded as a problem. Um, so there are multiple problems, and we need we need a new Reformation, in my view. I mean, that's part of the subtext of the whole book is, actually, we need to learn from this. They faced way greater challenges than we do. Their problems were vastly greater than ours, actually, um, on every front. Um, they didn't have peace and quiet. They didn't have resources. Uh, you know, they didn't have literacy. You know, so we are starting in a position where we are far more culpable for our failures. I think. Um, so when I go out and speak about the book, this is where we end up. Usually ends ends up with a long exhortation from me. And here's a cool thing: I was at a church recently here in the Lower Mainland, and after I had finished the the, the half day conference. Three people went up to the pastor and asked if they could get together to learn Greek with the pastor. And I thought to myself, wow, that's cool. Okay, so we're going to end uh, here with a lightning round. And this is a special one for you. Uh, I'm living in St. Andrews for the second time in my life here. Um, and so this lightning round is going to be called, How Scottish Are You Actually? Um, so these should be pretty easy if you're actually Scottish, uh, as far as I can tell. Okay. Um, if you ask me to interpret your palms allegorically, and I say, I know canny, what do I mean? I know canny. Yeah. That second bit, your accent threw me there a wee bit, <laughs> Sorry, actually. I tried not to do an accent. You know, I think you actually managed to do one, though, and yeah. it threw me off there. Um well, I think it says, yes, I can't, I think, is what you said. I'm not <laughs> that, quite sure. I need a bell. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, that's right. I said, yes, okay, good, I good, can't, good, good. which has okay. been a common rephrase around here. I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I know. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. If there's, okay, this is really testing your Scottishness to the absolute limits now. So you're going to cringe when okay. I read this, but bear with me. Okay. If there's slightly cheaper milk at a store three blocks away, but the closer store has a discounted and expired milk, which would you buy? Discounted and expired. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Okay, which accent, no is, <laughs> which, uh, accent is the least comprehensible to you? Dundonian, Glaswegian, Aberdonian, or that of an Edinburgh? Aberdonian. Really? Okay. Well, I grew up near Glasgow, so I understand that one. That would probably ah. be most people's go-to, but I yes. understand it. So. I, I have a little bit of trouble with the Dundonian one because that one is regional to us here. Well, okay, no, so let me, let me, let me uh, in terms of your own education, hunt down an Aberdeenshire farmer and see how you get on. <laughs> rural, rural Aberdeenshire is, is the worst. All right. Anyway. Challenge yeah. accepted. Um, yeah. So I saw that you're also a certified soccer coach. Yes. So this should be no problem for you. Um, is the term soccer an American or British term? Uh, well, that's a trick question, though, isn't it? Um, because the answer is is really there's no yes no answer to that one really. Um, what a biblical scholar. <laughs> yeah, no, really though. Um, I mean, both terms are there in Britain. Most ordinary folks call it football, but the thing is that technically, I think you'd find it's probably referred to as soccer. Technically. Yeah, so soccer it, uh, it derives from association football, what is what the Brits used right. to call it to distinguish yeah. it from rugby yeah. football. And later, yeah. American football, which, of course, the Brits loved to shorten down to ers, so it became a, a sock, and then a soccer, and then soccer, yeah. and the Americans appropriated many, it. Uh, many of what British people call Americanisms are actually earlier uh, right. British English forms. <laughs> I, that, I've seen this before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is an easy one. Should my daughters play shinty? Uh, only if they don't care about how they look later in life. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, which pop? Oh, shinty! It's a sport that involves. It's a very violent sport. Sticks in a ball and no it's restraint, like, as like far hockey, as I can tell. Except with no rules at all. It's just. It's yeah. it's hockey with no rules and Scottish men playing, right? So you can only imagine. Yeah. Okay, uh, penultimate question: Which pop duo hails from Achtermukti in the Kingdom of Fife? Oh, that would be the guys who wrote. We, I would walk ten thousand miles, right? The, That's it, close enough. Five hundred miles. Uh, it's the Proclaimers. Five hundred miles. The Proclaimers. Yeah. That was what I was. Yeah, I couldn't get the name. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right, and I saw that you're also. Are you still an ordained Church of Scotland minister? Well, that's an interesting question. The church has just changed its rules, you may know, and so we're in discussion. I have a friend of mine who's now been told he's no longer ordained, for God's sake, because he lives in Wenatchee in Washington. It seems mm. a bit of a weird situation. So I'm in, I'm in discussions because I'm an unusual case. But anyway, yes, for the moment, I am. Okay, so I too have worked for the Church of Scotland. Uh, and if you were a parish minister today in Scotland, how often would you perform communion, as opposed to the twice a year or four times a year that happens often here? Well, you're asking me a question about contemporary life, so I have no idea because I lived here for 20 years. When I was a kid, it was four times a year still. Is it different now? Uh, it depends on the church, four times a year, and right. some go really old school and go twice a year because you've got to be extra sorry right. before you take the yeah. sacrament. Yeah. 
Well, the, the, the even older tradition is one time a year Easter, and that's a big deal. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Well, Ian, uh, we want to thank you uh, very much for taking the time to speak with us on OnScript, and I think I could um, be speaking for a lot of our listeners here that we like literally loved uh, ha- hearing from you on this subject and we look forward to having you on again oh thank you it's been a blast thanks very much guys you've been listening to on script delectable conversations on scripture and theology if this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate